The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Um, I'm grateful for Josh. Uh, I'm, I just want to sh- just jump on what he said there for a moment and just encourage you uh, as well as a church. Let's be praying for Pastor Matt and his family in this time. Um, the investment and incredible leadership that they've given over this season of five years and this transition I know has got to be an emotional time for them. So let's be faithful to lift them up. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Acts chapter 9. We're going to just look at the first few verses of it this morning and and bounce around a good bit. And I want to start this morning just by uh, just kind of bearing a little bit of my heart for you guys uh, and some of what God has been had on my heart for myself and for us as a church body, um, because I think there's a, a reality right now that a lot of us in this moment, as we enter into the last couple months of this trying year, are tired and we're weary um, of soul, maybe of body, some of us, some of us parents who have been doing homeschool, just the realities that 2020 has presented have been tiring for us. And I think there's maybe this subtle thought floating around in some of our heads that, uh, that you know, I just got to make it to the end of 2020, and when 2021 hits, there's going to be a reset, some magical reset, uh, the turning of the calendar, the arbitrary number shift. Is, everything will be back to normal, and, and then I'll get my strength back together. And my fear and, and what I want to fight against is that we're, as a church, limping into the end of this year, hoping for a reset, and magically in 2021, and... and Um, A little seed of bad news before I I give some hope in this. That's not going to happen. 2021 is not going to be a magical reset of all things back to normal. The realities we're facing right now will continue into the new year. And I want to say with that in mind that right now where we are as a church, as people, as individuals, as souls and hearts, strength is available to us right now. And we don't have to limp through the end of this year. Strength is available. I want to see us finishing this year strong. And, and with that, I think so often we turn church into a thing that we leave feeling like we've been handed a list of things to do and we actually walk out the doors feeling heavier than we came in. Like, okay, I came in, I got the moral code, the, the rules to follow, the things I'm, I'm very much more in touch with, the ways I'm not measuring up and I'm going to go home. And we actually leave subtly just carrying more weight, <laughs> when we're already tired, rather than allowing church to be this place that functions as what it is supposed to be, which is a place of rest, a place of replenishment, as we, rather than getting our list of to-dos, we look to what has been done for us on the cross through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we rest ourselves in it, we rejoice in it, we experience his radical grace that is always available to us in every moment of every day and every time of year and every season. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote uh, The Lord of the Rings, and in The Lord of the Rings, it's this narrative, you know it, of, of Frodo, the Hobbit, and Sam, and, and it's this arduous journey. You've watched the movies, maybe, and you've seen they're doing crazy things. They have no shoes on, and they're traveling through mountains, and they're walking through snow, and you're thinking to yourself, this is a hard journey. This is a, a long journey for them with this ring, and I think I've never identified more than maybe today with Frodo and Sam and just the journey that they've been on and how tired they were. But Tolkien was intentional in his narrative to weave in these places called homely homes. 
homely homes into the narrative, which were places of replenishment and refueling and rest that renewed their, the soul of Frodo and Sam. He writes about one of them in, in The Fellowship of the Ring. Listen to this quote. Frodo, as he enters into this homely home, this place of rest on his journey, Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea. This was Rivendale, the elf home. I know it's a little nerdy. That house was, as Bilbo long ago had reported, a perfect house. Whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all. Listen to this. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. Can you just feel the raging fire and the warm Thanksgiving sweater around you as you read that? A, a cure for weariness. That's a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. That is what the church is supposed to be. When we gather together, these hours together, and as we embody community throughout the week, the, the shared um, Holy Spirit and grace that we experience through Christ is a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. So what is this moment right now? It's a time where we come together to remember the miracle of salvation. Christ's finished work given freely to all who would trust by faith in God. That finished work proves to us this morning, to you, whatever you're facing, whatever the disposition of your soul is towards God, that God's disposition towards you is love and mercy and grace and welcome. And he simply says, come to me and let me take care of the rest. Give me your mess. Come to me as you are and rest in me. And, and that is where strength for the journey is found. That is where the rest of soul that will make us finish 2021, 2020 going into 21 is found and simply coming to Jesus. I was speaking this morning with one of the band members who's recently um, been journeying in faith towards Jesus. And Jesus is working in his life. And he said, you know, life is really hard right now, candidly. My dad is sick, really sick. The pandemic, I'm tired. <laughs> But listen, Tyler, I've never felt more strength than I feel in this moment because Jesus is working in my life. Because I'm feeling something from knowing that he loves me where I'm at that I've never experienced before. And I've, in the midst of horrible circumstances, I've never felt stronger. I've never had a more resolve of soul. Church, that can be all of us this morning if we would simply come to Jesus where we are. And this morning, as we look at Acts chapter 9, what we're going to see is God's radical grace entering into the life of one of his primary enemies, one of the primary enemies of the early church. God's radical grace entering into his life and radically changing it. Miraculous grace, miraculously transforming. We're going to meet the Apostle Paul. It's a, and we're going to see a concentrated dose of the potent grace of God concentrated dose. And, and what I hope this is this morning for us is for some of us who are drifting into moralism, who have this weight on our shoulders that we're just not enough, that the disposition of God towards us is not grace, not mercy, not welcome, not freedom, available through Christ, that this would be some sort of electric jolt to us to remember and awaken us to his mercy and his grace towards us that is always available. A little bit about Paul. Paul is the most prominent figure in the New Testament outside of Jesus Christ himself. He was a juggernaut force for the gospel. 
unstoppable once converted. He wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. His three missionary journeys were instrumental in the spread of the gospel that would reach the ends of the earth. He had an interesting and unique background and upbringing. He was born into a Jewish family. He was trained and practiced and educated as a Pharisee. He was a Roman citizen. He was educated as a Greek. And by grace, later in life, radically converted to Christianity. Paul would have been sent off at a young age by his family to study, study the Torah. He would have had it mostly memorized. He would have memorized large chunks of the Old Testament. And by the time we meet him in Acts, he's a respected leader in the synagogue in Jerusalem. He knew and understood Jewish history. And Saul, Paul at this time, was a man who understood the message that was being proclaimed by this church that was moving and spreading. He understood its claims. He understood what it was saying about Jesus. And he had outright rejected it as heresy that needed to be ridded from the face of the earth like poison. He hated the church. He hated the message of Jesus Christ, though he understood it. In fact, the first thing we ever see Paul do as we're introduced to him in scripture is reject the gospel. It's the first thing we see him do. In Acts 7, 57 and 58, Stephen has just finished standing up proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ loud and proud. And we read in verse 57, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, them being the religious elite, the Sanhedrin, They dragged him out in the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later change his name and become Paul. Paul hears Stephen preach the sermon given in the Old Testament. Uh, Points to the Old Testament shows how everything that Paul had studied and known and memorized was actually one giant foam finger pointing towards Jesus Christ as the solution, the answer, the remedy for sin, the God, the promised Messiah, how it all finds its answer in him. And then Stephen got even bolder and he indicted Saul and the Jewish leaders saying, not only did you kill and stone all the prophets in the Old Testament, but in the most horrible and heinous act and missing of truth ever, now you've done it to God's chosen Messiah. As was prophesied, you put him to death. Saul, religious elite, you were the ones that put him to death. Saul hears this, he's enraged, he gnashes his teeth, and he stands over the crowd as they crush the life out of Stephen with rocks. And he's loving it. He thinks he's doing God's work. This man is firmly in the grips of the enemy, believing that he is doing the work of God. If ever there was a deceived religious man, it was the apostle Paul, at this time known as Saul. Saul, interestingly, uh, stands in stark contrast to the Ethiopian eunuch we met last week. If you remember back, the Ethiopian eunuch was a man who was searching, who hadn't received the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and the free grace that's given through faith in his name because he hadn't understood it. No one had preached it to him. He just needed to hear it. Paul's very different. He's heard it. He's understood it. And it is exactly that understanding that has rose up within him a desire to persecute and squash it out from the face of planet Earth. He hates the gospel. After presiding over Stephen's death, his next appearance is in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. We read that Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. 
He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. Ravaging the church, ravaging. That's strong language. Uh, very strong language. It's, it's a primal rage Paul had towards the church. The, the Greek word here translated ravaging is used nowhere else in the New Testament. But it is used in some extra biblical literature. And in those places, it describes a wild animal who's mangling and tearing a human body to shreds. This is Paul's disposition towards the message of Jesus Christ and anyone who would seek to spread it. And this wild beast, this man who wants to ravage the church, in Acts 9.15 we read, listen to this, is God's chosen instrument, the one God selected intentionally, purposely, to proclaim his name, to spread his fame. Why would God choose a man like Saul of Tarsus to become the greatest gospel conduit the world has ever seen outside of Jesus Christ himself? I mean, surely there are better choices, God. Why not take Peter or John and just lift them up a little higher? Use one of your apostles. Use one of the seven chosen in Acts 6. There's all sorts of qualified people. The church does not need the apostle Paul. Why choose him? Why go out of your way, God, to use this man that hates you? Paul himself, post-conversion, gives us the answer in 1 Timothy 15 and 1, 15 and 16. This is one of my favorite passages in scripture. I read it often. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, acceptance, the apostle Paul writes. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Why did Jesus Christ come to the world? He came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the worst. He's in touch with who he was before Christ. There's a humility marking Paul that will never be taken never be removed, an awareness of who he was before Jesus. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, listen to this. Why God? Why did you choose Paul? Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Do you believe this morning that God has immense patience towards you? immense patience towards you. This is what I mean when I say I hope you find rest for your soul here, that you're not being handed a list of things to measure up to, but that you're simply seeing the character of God and his disposition of mercy and radical grace towards you. He has immense patience for you and me. The reason that he selected the Apostle Paul in a world of options was so that down the road you and I could look back and see the example he gave us of I choose the worst of the worst to do the greatest of the great for me. And why? Because I want you to see that my disposition towards you is immense patience. I chose Paul because I wanted to give you an example that you can't outrun my grace, that you can't outsin my mercy, that I have a use for you, that I love you, that I will welcome you if you will simply come to me. Maybe in this testimony of God's grace and patience with Saul this morning, we can see something of God's unearthly love for us. His unearthly, unworldly compassion that he doesn't relate to us as we relate to each other. 
So in Acts chapter 8, as it ends, the gospel is spreading through Judea, Samaria. It's reached the ends of the earth through the Ethiopian eunuch. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we read this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Meanwhile, meanwhile, meaning this, as, as Philip, in the moment Philip is ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch and speaking the gospel and it's moving in power to the ends of the earth, as, as Judea and Samaria are birthed with new churches and new hope and new life, meanwhile, the oxygen of Paul's soul, what he is breathing in and out, his waking and his sleeping, his mission and focus, the impetus of his life is to kill the church. And from our view, what we see there is a hopeless case. What the apostles probably saw was an, a hopeless case, an enemy to be avoided, feared, understandably so. But from God's view, this meanwhile reality in Paul's life, God looks at Saul, at Paul, and he sees a chosen instrument, even as he is ravaging the church. Our view of what God is doing is so limited. It's limited. Neither Paul himself nor anyone else knew that as he was breathing out murder towards the church, God was planning a takeover of his life. A radical transformation through radical mercy. I want to make this applicable to our moment right here, right now. I believe right now, and I want to believe with all of my heart, that there are many meanwhile future Christians all around us right now. If you love Jesus today, you had a meanwhile once. God's church was on the move, moving along perfectly fine without you, without me. We weren't needed. We were living a meanwhile, just living life, going through the day to day, seeking pleasure in things that were failing us, seeking meaning in things that offered no significance, waking up without purpose. And then Jesus by his grace, radically reveals himself to us. We hear the gospel and he saves us. We all had a meanwhile. We've been planting this church for five years. For five years as we've been counseling and preaching and renovating buildings and having meetings and seeking to build this church, there have been people all around our city who are meanwhile future Christians who will one day fill this church. May we be a church whose hearts and doors are open wide to soon-to-be meanwhile Christians. Church, may we not lose hope that God can still save anyone. May we, may we have faith in God's ability to save and where we're tempted to see only a hopeless cause, only an enemy, may we instead see a beloved child of God in process in the midst of their meanwhile, soon to be saved from despair into new life in Jesus. I want to ask this question. What if the most fruitful member of Story City Church is currently someone we would fear? What if the most fruitful person that will ever enter these doors and spread the gospel is right now someone who we would consider an enemy of God opposed to everything that Christianity they think stands for? Hear me, all that stands between them and a radical transformation is an encounter with Jesus Christ. The proclamation of the gospel, understanding Jesus illuminating the eyes of their heart, an effectual call that saves them. 
And then like the Apostle Paul, with the awareness that they are the chief of sinners, they enter the doors of our church, speaking the gospel boldly, and the gospel goes forward in our city. I believe that's going to happen. I believe the most powerful missionary that will ever grace Story City Church is lost right now, needing the gospel, and they will hear it, and Jesus will reveal himself to them. And it will all just be a meanwhile. Verses one and two continues. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way was what they called the church. It was kind of an ironic name, almost teasing, like they're the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. They're mocking it. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So the church has been scattered out of Jerusalem. They've run. Paul's leading the the persecution. But it's not enough for him that the church is out of Jerusalem. He wants to pursue it. He's after it. He wants to stamp out what's being kindled elsewhere. And so he gets the papers, the approval from the Sanhedrin. He's going to go pursue the church to the city of Damascus. It's a six-day journey, and he is marching with his entourage to persecute and throw into prison, breathing out murder against the church. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Jesus, as he appears, flashes in brilliant light, and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's interesting that he says Saul's name twice. In all of Luke's writings, the repetition of a name by Jesus always implies an intimate relational correction. An intimate, relational correction. In Luke 10, he says, Martha, Martha, as Martha is missing the point and not sitting at his feet. In Luke 22, he says, Simon, Simon, as Simon is saying, I will always stand for you. And he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. In Luke 13, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as he says, how I've longed to pull you to myself. How I've longed to gather you under my wings, but you would not come. If only you knew the things that make for peace. There's an intimate relational correction. And Jesus enters into the life of Saul, saying, Saul, Saul, even as Saul is persecuting the church, Jesus is saying, Saul, Saul, there's an intimate personal relationship here. You may not know me, but I'm the one that knit you together in your mother's womb. I'm the one who's been standing by watching you persecute my church. And by persecuting my church, I am so intimately woven into the fabric of this church. They are my people, my body, my bride. And so by persecuting my my church, Saul, you are persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? He enters into Saul's Life immediately offering relationship. And Saul replies, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? There is so much in that simple phrase. Who are you, Lord? I don't know for sure if this was an immediate conversion. And by saying Lord right here, Paul is saying, Lord Jesus Christ, or if he's simply saying, you're obviously a Lord because your glory has blinded me and I'm on the floor. I don't know which one it was. But I know that Saul's conversion was quick thereafter. I know that it happened quickly. I know that all of his knowledge of the Old Testament and its writings and Jesus as the key that unlocks it all was quickly rewiring in his brain. 
Faith was moving quickly. He sees Jesus in his Revelation 1 reality, not this meek, lowly man that Isaiah 53 says is someone people turn their face away from, but this holy God with a face that shines like the sun. And as anyone in the Bible is done when they're presented with the reality of this Jesus, our Jesus, he's immediately undone. He falls to the ground. He acknowledges the lordship and Jesus responds, I'm Jesus Christ, whom you're persecuting. And from the moment Paul hears those words, his entire life is radically rewired. The rest of Acts chapter 9 is the story of Paul's conversion through a man named Ananias coming and, uh, and allowing the scales to fall from his eyes, his being filled with the Holy Spirit, his reuniting with the disciples, and the disciples are scared of him. And Barnabas has to enter in and say, no, let's trust the Lord's work in this man. But from this moment forward, all the energy, all the intellect, all the training with which he had opposed and persecuted Jesus and his people is now going to be redirected towards proclaiming Christ, towards knowing Christ, towards treasuring Christ, and even towards suffering for Christ. I don't have time to unfold all of Acts chapter 9, so I just want to fast forward to a text in Philippians 3 and show the end result of God's work in Paul, the type of man that it created in him, who it turned him into. Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Paul gives a litany of who he was before Jesus, all of the badges of honor that he wore to justify him, to make him feel worth something and good and worthy, his religion, his religion badges, his Boy Scout badges. He gives them all. And then he says, those are nothing to me now. It's all been replaced. Listen to this. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever gains to me, whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes by God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul models for us here what happens in a transformed heart. The transformed heart is a heart that is melted by grace. It's a heart that is, like I said last week, aware that the fact that it is saved is a miracle. Christians are not people that stand before others and before God and say, of course I'm saved. Look at me. I'm way better than everyone else. I, I got a good list. There are people that understand and say, the fact that I'm a Christian is a miracle. And the fact that Christ has saved me is proof of his love for me, his worth, his glory. And he has become the center and orienting reality of my life. And more than that, the treasure of my heart. I want to know him. Can you say that? Can I say that? 
Is church something we do? Is religion a game we play? Or is Christ a treasure in our hearts? Which one is it? Christianity is about Christ being treasure. It's about Christ being all to us, that everything else becomes rubbish. And what we see in the story of Paul here is a simple reality that no human heart is farther away than one encounter with Jesus from radical transformation. Think of the worst of the worst of the worst, the person you would consider farthest from the Lord that you may even be fearful in front of. No human heart is farther than one radical encounter with Jesus Christ and his grace away from miraculous transformation. So we focused last week on the need to preach the gospel, and that's yes and amen. To add to that this week, we need to be people of prayer for the lost people in our lives. We need to be people who intercede for the lost in our lives. Do you know that the Apostle Paul was prayed for in Acts chapter 7 by Stephen? Stephen's final words as he's being stoned to death mirror Jesus' final words on the cross. Father, do not hold this sin against them. In praying that prayer, he prayed for the Apostle Paul, not having any idea that soon thereafter, the very man who was standing over his death would be radically transformed by the gospel he proclaimed and become the greatest Christian missionary ever. And Stephen died not knowing that. So often we don't get to see the fruit of our praying and our proclaiming. But know this, church, God is going to use it. I mentioned J.R.R. Tolkien at the beginning. He had a friend named C.S. Lewis. And they were in a club they founded where they worked on creative material together called the Inklings. It was a group of incredible men. And in this club, uh, early on in their lives, Tolkien and Lewis were friends, and Lewis didn't know the Lord. He had been through the ravaging realities of World War I, and it had hardened his heart. But, but J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, was a Christian. And we read, if you go back and look, for three years... J.R.R. Tolkien walked with C.S. Lewis. He prayed for C.S. Lewis. He prayed for his salvation. He prayed for the illuminating realities of Jesus Christ and his grace to open the eyes of C.S. Lewis. And it took C.S. Lewis a long time. By the time C.S. Lewis came to faith, he said he was the most reluctant convert in all of England because he didn't really want to give his life to this reality that his heart was hardened against, but it was melted by the realities of God's spirit intervening and by the prayers of J.R.R. Tolkien. Are we praying people into salvation. There's a, uh, we, we have up front, Pastor Matt wrote for us, seven defining realities of Story City Church, seven vision statements or values. And we've walked through them uh, recently with the pastoral search team. The second one says this, and this is, you wanna know what kind of church you're at? This is number two on those, on those values. We value the radical grace of Jesus for all people. Central to our ministry is the fact that people matter to God. No one is too bad, too mad, or too far from God to matter to him. We value all people, regardless of background, messes, and successes. We will do everything we can to help people meet Jesus, and we will never stop doing it. I love that. That is the church I want to be. We value the radical grace of Jesus for all people, and we're not ashamed of it. I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating. I think that one way we can know that we're being faithful with the gospel here at Story City, that we're stewarding it well, is that this church always has a little messiness to it. 
always has a little messiness to it. Why? Because if people are being saved, if people are going from death to life and becoming baby Christians, they're going to be new to the faith. They're going to be figuring out what it looks like to walk with Jesus, and they're going to be knocking things over from time to time. Babies are messy. I have one in my house right now. Toddlers are messy. Now listen to me. With that said, the reason I'm employed, Pastor Matt's employed, our staff is here is because according to Ephesians 4, 12, and 13, it is our duty to equip the saints for the work of ministry and walk them into maturity. So I think there needs to be two things always happening at Story City. There needs to be babies growing up into teenagers, into adulthood, and into full maturity in the Christian faith. And there also simultaneously always needs to be a wide front door, kids being birthed all the time, who are just plain messy and welcomed where they are, welcomed to figure the journey out. May we never, ever, ever become a religious country club. It's full of tidy church folk with their shirts tucked in. May we always rather be a messy family of forgiven sinners. Sticking together. Because in the same way that you don't get to choose your actual family, we don't get to choose the family of God. But knowing that we're all simply beggars of grace here. That's what we are. We're just grace beggars. So here's what I hope people who are new or searching or returning to God and church experience when they engage at Story City. I hope first and foremost that they are so radically loved and embraced as they are, where they are. I hope that they experience a hospitality of heart and hands and home that is so deeply attractive and speaks louder than words. Hear me. It's hard to believe someone hates you when they've got a seat at your dinner table. It's hard to believe that someone is your enemy when they've pulled a chair up for you and cooked you a warm meal. And that's important because I also hope that we're a church that is willing to confront people with the truth, that is proud of the truth, that is confident in the word of God and all that it has said makes for life and freedom. I hope people leave our church saying, well, that church may disagree with me here, but man, I've never felt more loved, more welcomed, more embraced as I am. And that's what we'll look like if we're modeling what Jesus looked like. Because in John 1:14, we get a description of Jesus that says he came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The fullness of grace and truth. We need to learn and be a church that holds grace and truth in tension, church. Because grace without truth is impotent. Grace without truth is sentimentality. It coddles and affirms, but it has no transformative power. It doesn't offer the medicine needed for the healing. And truth without grace is destructive. It's harsh. It offers good information, but in a way that only entrenches and hardens those in the error they need to be set free from. But the love God gives us through Jesus Christ is full of radical truth that confronts us with the realities of who we are and who God is, and simultaneously full of radical grace towards us in Jesus Christ that draws us in and creates a love that transforms. 
So together this morning, let's ask God for the faith to believe that he can still do in the hearts of people that are far from him. Those who fill our neighborhoods who hate the presence of our church in their city. Those who work with us who hate the things we stand for. The people in the coffee shops that we visit. May we have faith to believe that what God did in the heart of Saul, turning him into Paul, is still available to us today. And let's ask God to make us a people so in touch with the reality of the grace we've received that we can be a place of rest and welcome for weary souls and searching hearts, a homely home. Let's be people of grace and truth, church. And let's watch God move. He can still move right now. He can still move right now. God, give us faith to believe it. So I want to end our time together. I've been preaching way too long lately, and I apologize for that. Um, I want to end five more minutes. This is the end of our series in Acts. We're going to move forward next week. And I want to end by looking at a place in Acts quickly, separate from this text, that gives us some encouragement. And it's from an unlikely source. It's from a man named Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee that trained Paul. He, we meet him in Acts chapter 5, and we, we talked about how Paul was trained as a Pharisee. The man that he was trained under is this man, Gamaliel. And in Acts chapter 5, the church is spreading through Jerusalem and uh, the apostles have been placed in jail by the Sadducees uh, and put in prison. And Jesus frees them from prison miraculously and they go out to proclaim Jesus more and the Sadducees are weighing what to do with them. Do we put them to death? <laughs> we want them to shut up about the gospel so much that we're, we're, we're enraged. We want to kill them. And they call them before him and say, stop preaching the gospel. And the, the, Peter and John and the apostles reply and say, we don't care what you have to say. We're following God. Should we obey you or God? And they give another gospel grenade right in their faces in return. And they want, to, they want to kill him. And so the apostles stand before the Sanhedrin ready to be killed. And then this man, Gamaliel, steps up to the plate and he speaks. And this is the most underrated speech in the book of Acts, in my opinion. It says this. When they heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. And he was killed. And all his followers were dispersed. And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. And all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, just leave the men alone. Let them go. For if, listen to this, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. What Gamaliel said is this. Movements like Christianity don't make it if God's not the one standing behind them. Movements like Christianity don't last for 2,020 years of church history if God is not supernaturally protecting and leading and sustaining his church. 
They scatter, they fail, they fall. And Gamaliel feared that the church was driven by God, that it was led by God. He hoped with all his heart that it was not. But guess what it was? It was. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we see the church spreading like wildfire. We are here today because God was there in that moment. And hear me, church, he's here in this moment too. The men that he used, Peter, John, Saul, they were sinners just like me and just like you, radically saved and miraculously transformed. And standing behind them was God, using them in spite of themselves to build a church that cannot fail so that he could bring salvation to many who are far from him. So I just wanna close us out by saying, we're in a unique moment. We're in a time of transition as a church. We're in the midst of a pandemic as a church. We're not able to be together on Sundays as a church. We're in the midst of an election year as a church. Church, in the chaos of 2020, let's remember the truth of Gamaliel right here. Let's remember the truth that if our purses, if our activity is of human origin, it would have failed a long time ago. But it's from God. And no one will be able to stop it. No one will be able to stop Story City Church because God is the one leading. We are a continuation of Acts. Let's walk with the faith that God himself is the one leading, standing behind, supporting, that the pastor that will come to lead our church, the man God has chosen, God is preparing right now, that the season we are going to walk through of transition right now, God is standing behind, leading, guiding, preparing, placing people where they need to be placed, preparing our hearts for him, preparing his heart for us. God himself is sustaining Story City Church. God himself is sustaining churches everywhere. Take heart, take strength, enjoy and embrace the rest of God's radical grace that alone can miraculously transform. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we rest ourselves in your grace this morning. May we be a church of welcome, of warmth to people that would oppose us. And Jesus, would you build this church? Would you lead us through this season of transition? Knowing that what is happening here is not of human origin. And that no one can stop it except for you. So Jesus, build your church, sustain your church, lead us, make us passionate and bold proclaimers of your gospel, willing to suffer for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.